This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, this is Trisha. Just a quick reminder before we get to our guest today that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is on Saturday, October 26th at Georgetown University, and we really hope all of you plan to join us. You'll come and be inspired by luminaries in health and wellness and take home real strategies to improve your happiness and wellness. You can get all the information you need at AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com. And now for the show. People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Lawrence Williams is a journalist who writes about the connections between people, health, and nature. She is the author of The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative, as well as Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History, which won the 2012 Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the 2012 Audi Award, and a notable book of 2012 by the New York Times. Please welcome best-selling author Florence Williams to Health Gig. I'm so happy to be here. Florence, we know you're a journalist, but tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this work about the benefits of nature. Yes, thanks for asking. I really started out as an environmental journalist. My first job out of college many years ago was working for an environmental newspaper in Colorado, And I spent over two decades living in Colorado and Montana writing kind of traditional environmental stories like what's wrong with your air, what's happening with the Forest Service, why is there a mine going in this wilderness area. And at some point I just realized that I was curious about people. I had a baby and I found out that there were toxins in my breast milk. It just Mm. became apparent to me that there are all these sort of hidden connections between our planetary health and our own health that weren't necessarily being discussed. And so as a journalist, I just started sort of putting people back in the equation and becoming more and more interested in environmental health. And I really see this book as kind of an extension of that. And the idea that you've made it so easy to understand that we need nature in our life. So can you talk about that? And you talk about nature being a superpower in many different ways. Can you go through that with us? Yeah, absolutely. The story really came out of kind of a personal narrative, which is that I moved from the beautiful mountains of Colorado and Montana to the heart of Washington, D.C. I felt like this kind of stress bomb went off in my own brain where I felt more anxious and I felt more depressed and I had trouble sleeping. And I really just started to think about what I had lost in terms of that connection to nature. And it made me really curious about what the journalist Richard Louvre has called nature deficit disorder. Mm. You know, was this a real thing? And what did the science have to say about it? As a science journalist, I really was curious about what the data had to say. And it turned out that there was new research coming out from around the world where scientists were really able to take new tools into the field in order to measure, you know, what was happening to our brains and bodies in these different environments. So I got an assignment from Outside Magazine and then another one from National Geographic. And those magazines really sent me around the world to talk to these scientists. What I found out about, and I organized the book by dose, is that even, you know, five minutes in nature can start to make a difference. Even a view of trees or a lawn or, you know, just greenery outside our window can make a difference in things like hospital patients, you know, how much medication they require. And then after 20 minutes in nature, our blood pressure starts to drop. 
our respiration can slow, our nervous systems really respond. Does it have to be a certain part of nature? I mean, what's nature when you're talking about nature? Can it be a tree in the middle of a street? How do you define it? That is such an important question. You know, because I moved here from Colorado, my initial definition of nature was kind of, yeah, I was kind of a snob. Vast open spaces. (laughs) Right. I want, you know, a snow-covered peak and no people around and an incredible sunset. But I have since learned how to have a much more generous definition of nature. And in fact, Oscar Wilde has this lovely definition where he says, "Eh, you know, nature is really just a place where birds fly around uncooked. (laughs) And I started to really sort of acknowledge that, yes, there is nature in our cities. We have beautiful trees. We have parks and green space. We still have sunsets. You know, sometimes we have the stars, not as often as we'd like. Sometimes we have the moon. And I have really learned how to sort of find beauty in the city as a way to calm down and to find beauty where I can find it, because now I know so much about how it is helpful to us. Patricia and I always love the science behind everything. When you were in Japan, weren't you involved in some studies that studied college students and hanging out in forests as opposed to city streets? Japan was actually the first place I went because as a country, it has really promoted the policy of forest Mm. bathing, what they call shinrin-yoku. And this is what I wrote about for Outside initially. Forest bathing is just the practice of really opening up all of your senses when you're outside. And Mm -hmm. in Japan, they now have several dozen of what they call forest therapy trails. What, again, does that look like? (laughs) It's really just a trail. You know, it's just a trail. But because it has a designation like that, I think people know it's a place they can go where they can feel better. And also there are all these rangers who will tell people from Tokyo, here's how you forest bathe. And they're trained. They're trained. And there's a really specific set of what they call sort of invitations to close your eyes, hear the sounds of the forest, feel Mm. the breeze on your face. These are invitations that do help engage all of your senses. And that in turn is what's really linked to these wonderful benefits we see in our nervous systems. So that's when we calm down. You know, we have to kind of put aside our to-do list and all the things that are still churning through our brains when we sort of go for a quick walk in the city. And so these invitations help pull us out of our thinking mode, help our sensory brains turn on. And that's kind of when the magic happens. You know, that's that mindful state. That's when we see the changes in blood pressure drop, even after 15 or 20 minutes. People's moods are reported to increase. Their heart rate variability really changes in a way that's kind of more beneficial for stress. So to get those benefits, do you have to consciously say, I am now going forest bathing? I don't think you have to take those steps. I think what the steps do is that they give you a little bit of a shortcut. I don't necessarily take all those steps, although when I am on my sort of daily walk, and I really do try to do one every day, even if it's 30 minutes, you know, in the parks near my house, I will sort of say to myself, oh, wait, what am I hearing? Which birds are around? Oh, I want to find out which blossoms are coming out this week. And otherwise, I will just kind of space out and think about what's for dinner. You know, Mm -hmm. we all do that. And because I don't have a half a day or three days to lie under the stars, it is helpful, I think, to give myself certain cues just to pull me out of that busy city brain. Mm -hmm. This morning in preparation for the interview, I told Trish I went forest bathing. So I decided to listen to the sights and sounds and notice the smells and everything. And one of the things that I noticed were the songs of the birds and how beautiful that was. And you talk about the effect of the sound of birds. You know, there are researchers out there who are studying all of these elements of nature and Mm -hmm. sort of how they make us feel. And so there are some scientists who are really looking at bird sound. 
And they're mm. also, by the way, looking at urban noise pollution and the many ways that that stresses us out, mm-hmm. especially these low rumbling mm. sounds of you know highway traffic or road traffic. And of course, airplanes, there's so many of them in my neighborhood. Leaf blower. I oh, heard you I talk about the leaf, the leaf blower. <laughs> they are the bane of my existence, <laughs> especially because I work at home. And so I just hear them all day. Yeah. So what the science has shown is that when we hear birdsong, and also, by the way, when we hear water sounds, like mm. a creek, or sort of gentle wind sounds through the trees. Those are the three sort of magic sounds that really help us feel centered and grounded and kind of slow us down a little bit. You know, if you think about it, when birds are chirping, you know, sort of all is right in the world. And we evolved with those sounds. Our brains, our nervous systems evolved outside, right? For almost all of our existence, except for the last, whatever, 100 years, we have lived in more naturalistic environments. And so it makes sense that our brains on some levels just feel comfortable outside. And our nervous systems, our perceptual systems know how to interpret those sounds and those visual cues of being outside. Whereas driving through a traffic circle in Washington, D.C., it's very overwhelming to our senses and our nervous system. And we have to actually filter out kind of the sensations of modern life, which is an exhausting task. That's so true. So, Doro, how did you feel after you went forest bathing? Oh, I felt good. I felt relaxed and calm. And it's really true. You talk about, too, in the book about forest bathing by yourself and then forest bathings with others. Can Mm -hmm. you talk about that? Is it a good thing to be with someone else? You know, the thing about nature (laughs) is that it's so individualistic. You know, it will change depending on sort of our needs. I know personally there are times when I just want some solitude. You know, I need to work something out. I want to think about something, even if I'm writing something and I need sort of the creativity of sort of mind wandering outside. It's great to me alone. But, you know, we know that there are so many incredibly positive benefits of social interaction, social engagement, time with friends, having these shared experiences that aren't mediated by a device or by a screen, you know, where we can actually laugh together and read the emotions in each other's faces. And time outside is very, very bonding for people. When you also talk, and we said this earlier, the superpowers of nature. And when you say that, you have the science behind it, right? So can you kind of go through it? Like, what is a superpower that it does to our brain? So on emotional levels, after time outside, there have been brain studies looking at people's brains after 40-minute walks or after 90-minute walks. And some of those subjects will be sent to walk in a park. Some will be sent to walk in a city. We know that certain parts of the brain associated with depression and rumination, for example, quiet down in nature. They don't quiet down after a city walk. And in Mm. fact, people report, after my 90-minute walk, I was really not thinking a lot of negative thoughts. I was thinking positive thoughts. And that benefit will last at least throughout the day, maybe a couple of days. There's a really interesting science of awe going on now. Love that. Science of awe and the space of awe. Yes. Like I say, we evolved outside, you know, watching the sunset and watching shooting stars feeling awe on a regular basis, Mm -hmm. you know, feeling kind of small in the universe, feeling connected to the universe, feeling connected to each other, which also happens when we experience awe. It turns out these kinds of feelings are actually really important for our own well-being and for getting along in a community where we're not just sort of out for ourselves, which is, I think, so much what American culture kind of teaches us. When we experience awe, it's like, oh, yeah, we are more than just ourselves. There's more going on here than what I'm doing to advance my career. 
So it's really important to have that. There's also a lot of science now in terms of cognition and creativity. So there's a neuroscientist I spend a lot of time with in Utah, Dr. David Strayer. He's done some studies showing that people improve their creativity 50% after being outside for a couple of days. Mm. He knew that he got his best ideas outside, and so he started studying it. When you say a couple of days, is that you're camping out, or is it you go out today, tomorrow? I mean, how many hours does that take, his studies? In his study, he actually looked at outward-bound backpackers. And there was another study that replicated his findings looking at canoeists. So yes, these particular groups were outside sort of 24-7 for three days. And now he's doing brain imaging studies looking at brain waves. And he's finding that, you know, we're producing maybe more alpha waves, which are associated with calm and alert. And also that makes sense that that would be good for cognition. And so he's finding that, again, after a few days outside. Although I wore a brainwave studying device called an EEG cap, (laughs) I wore that in a number of different environments, too. And I was not able to get alpha waves in my city park (laughs) (laughs) because probably it was so noisy for me. And I get annoyed by noise (laughs) more than a lot of people. But I was able to get them in the wilderness and on a quiet lake in Maine, for example. You know, and then there are these psychological benefits where we Mm. just become in a better mood when we're outside. We are easier to get along with. We are less short-tempered. We actually have an expanded perception of time. So we feel less impatient, less harried. You know, and how important is that? So Mm. if we can have a little reprieve from it, the benefits are really vast. Back to the awe, not everybody can be in Boulder. And can you tell us how cities are creating spaces of awe? Yeah, I think a lot of enlightened cities are really starting to acknowledge that it's important for our well-being to have more trees. For example, a number of cities in the United States are in these million tree campaigns, including New York City. D.C. is planting tens of thousands of trees right now. There's actually a biophilic city movement in D.C. and in a lot of places where planners and designers are looking at things like how to improve stormwater drainage through greenery through having sort of nicely landscaped swales for mm. redirecting stormwater. And we're seeing more rooftop gardens. Enlightened employers, you know, like Facebook, have walking trails basically on their roof, <laughs> as well as break rooms inside facilities. Google has these facilities all over the world that have break rooms filled with huge plants. And even that, even indoor plants are associated with some states of restoration and relaxation. And I was going to ask you, for people who can't get outside, how do we bring the outdoors in? What are people doing? And I guess they're doing it at Facebook. Yeah, they are. And I also love that many architects now are embracing some of these concepts of biophilia. So they're designing spaces with more natural daylight, spaces where you can kind of tell what's happening outside. You can like see the sun you know, sort of moving along the walls inside. Temperature variability within the buildings. Again, more of these sort of green walls and fountains inside. Natural materials. I think there are a lot of ways to make our indoor spaces more conducive to stress reduction and to productivity. You know, it turns out that we're more alert if we're working in natural daylight. We all need the sort of bright light that we get from time outside. It helps us sleep better. It helps us feel more alert while we're working. Some people are looking into virtual reality. So, for example, there's a prison in Oregon where there are videos of nature sort of displayed on the walls in the gym. The inmates who exercise in those rooms have fewer incidences of aggression. They feel better than the inmates who are exercising in sort of a blank room. 
just the idea that we seem to act like we are not part of nature. Right. So this is almost taking us back to the fact that we are a part of nature, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> In a lot of Western cultures, we tend to think that we are separate from nature, that nature is out there. If anything, we can conquer it and exploit it and benefit from it. But one thing I learned while traveling, you know, throughout other cultures in the world is that there's a more integrated sense of nature being part of daily life. You know, there are many parts of Asia where there are lots of plants that are brought indoors. The Zen garden movement is, you know, a little bit of nature sort of in everyday life, floral arrangements. I mean, it's just really interesting. You don't have to have a wilderness area or even a park to feel like you have some connection to something natural. How do you encourage people who are disinclined to go outside? How do you encourage them to get out and enjoy nature and be part of it? I think it's just really important to tell them to try it yeah, <laughs> and to start slowly. Maybe go with friends you mm-hmm. know, or go with a group because nature can feel intimidating to a lot of people. But it's funny. I mean, I have people who have told me, oh, I don't like nature. And then a little bit later, they'll say, oh, but I love going to the beach. Or I love gardening, or I love my pets, you know, all of those things are all ways of interacting with nature. So, you know, I encourage people to pay attention to how they feel when they're in different environments. Not everyone is going to feel great after being in a forest. You know, they're going to feel claustrophobic, and they would prefer to be on a beach. And not everyone's going to like being on a beach. I think it's important that we sort of know what our own happy places are and then try to go to them and see how we feel. I think it's been sort of well established in studies that we tend to undervalue how nature will make us feel. And we overvalue what watching Netflix or eating ice cream will do for us. Yeah. (laughs) I have this just very simple saying, which I tell people, which is, you know, go outside, go often, bring friends or not, and just breathe. What's your nature fix? Oh, good question. (laughs) My secret nature fix is that I'm actually a total river rat. I love being on a river. I have a number of boats. I have a kayak and a canoe, and I own half a raft. (laughs) And I go out on the Potomac here sometimes in D.C. I Mm -hmm. also am fortunate I get to still go out west sometimes and go on river trips. I think there's just something about hearing the water that makes me really happy. And I think this is actually really important. The metaphors of the river really respond to me. But I think all of us can find helpful metaphors in nature. You know, we see these areas that may have been clear cut or even burned down or some ways ravaged. And yet nature comes back, right? It's so Mm. resilient. That's a really, really powerful message. The seasons go on, life continues, and there's always renewal. Always renewal. And also when you realize that the trees, and Dora, you talk a lot about this, how the trees are interconnected underneath, that there's Mm -hmm. a whole system underneath. I love that. It's just crazy how we're all dependent on each other. Just on a physiological level, our bodies can pick up some of the chemical messengers going on between trees. You know, the trees emit these aerosols, these phytoncides. Some of them are actually antibacterial. And it turns out they're really good for the human immune system as well. When I think of nature and the ocean, I think of my dad because he loved it so much. He passed his appreciation of nature and the ocean on to my brothers and me. Do you know what I mean? You know, I think our culture, our family culture and our sort of broader culture are very, very integral, you know, to how we respond to different environments. It's part of your family tradition. It's part of your sense of identity. It's part of your sense of self. And I think as humans, we are designed to feel that way. You know, we have a natural affinity for these landscapes of our childhood. 
whether mm-hmm. we just got to experience those landscapes maybe on summer breaks or you know here and there. But I think our brains want to connect to those landscapes. And I think you also talk about the importance of getting our children outside. Absolutely. Can you talk about that and, and how they're not out there now? <laughs> <laughs> we are facing this huge, I mean, really now two generations, huge disconnection from nature. This has never happened before in the history of our species. So it's incredibly important to think about what it means for our health and for our well-being. I think a lot of parents are really anxious. I mean, they know it's not great for their kids to be on their phones all day long, to be watching television, to be playing with the iPad from the age of, you know, three months old. We know that this maybe isn't so great. And we know that our kids want to play. I've rarely seen a kid who wasn't just automatically drawn to being outside especially if they get to experience it at a young enough age. And so that's one of the reasons I think it's so important to connect kids early. Because if you miss that opportunity, then nature is going to feel more unfriendly and more unfamiliar. And yet, if kids can actually learn to feel connected to nature, it's a gift that will last them their entire lives. They will know there's a way for them to feel calmer, for them to experience joy, for them to connect to something outside of themselves. And they know how to play. You know, it's so important. Trish and I talk a lot about mindfulness and meditation. We're big believers in the practice, but not everybody can sit on a pillow and meditate. And so we know that nature can be an option for some people. Can you talk about nature as a meditation? You know, mindfulness has been linked sort of intuitively, but also through many, many brain studies to well-being. Part of that is because you're able to be mindful just in a space. You're able to enjoy the present moment. You're able to notice what's around you. And nature is really a natural way to become mindful in a space. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned those invitations to sort of close your eyes and listen to the songs of the forest or wherever you are. What is that? That's really just being mindful. It's not necessarily repeating a mantra or trying to sort of empty your mind in a way that people who meditate are pretty good at doing quickly. But I think that being in nature is kind of an easier, more accessible way for a lot of people to, in fact, enjoy the benefits of that mindfulness. And nature is always available, right? I guess if you're in the city, as you said, you kind of have to create it. The pop-up parks that are coming up, do you have any thoughts on those? (laughs) I love this impulse to sort of green our cities. You know, nature is sort of available, but let's face it, it's not equally accessible for everyone. There are a lot of social justice issues when you look at who lives in the neighborhoods with the nice trees and who doesn't, which schools have the nice yards, who's going to summer camp, right? A lot of serious injustices there. And if we really acknowledge that nature is not a luxury, but actually a necessity for being our best human selves, it's imperative that we figure out how to bring nature into all these neighborhoods or how to help get kids and community members able to experience better quality parks, more parks. In a lot of cities, including D.C., there are nature deserts or park deserts in a way that there are food deserts. Yeah, like food deserts. And so I love this initiative now. The Trust for Public Land is, you know, one of the organizations that's actually mapping where these park deserts are across the country and making these neighborhoods a priority. Their goal is really beautiful, I think, and it's that, you know, everyone has a right to live within a 10-minute walk of some green space. That would be awesome. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah, that would be. And a pocket park to start. Yeah, it's in the right direction. You know, Finland. Finland. Yeah. Can you talk about Finland? Yeah. You know, the adults in Finland sort of live like they're at Waldorf preschool all the time. They go outside and they hold hands and they sing songs and they have picnics and they go berry picking. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm probably going to get a response from someone in Finland who's going to be mad at me for stereotyping them. But it's just a culture that's still very connected to nature. And part of that is because they industrialized a lot later than a lot of countries in Europe. But like everywhere, people in Finland are more depressed. They're more obese. There's more diabetes. They are spending more time inside, just like everyone public health officials have been studying how do we prevent some of these Western epidemics. And interestingly, they now have a specific sort of dosage recommendation for time and nature. And what the health officials are saying in Finland is that we think everyone should have a minimum dose of five hours a month of time and nature. So if you can get 10 hours a month, that's better. But five hours a month will actually prevent mild depression. So that's really a strong statement. Who knows if it'll apply to other cultures, but you know that amounts to two visits a week, 30 to 40 minutes each time. And not requiring the conscious idea of bathing in the forest or no, just, they just, just get out in nature. Know, just get out there, sit on a park bench. Eventually your sensory brain will wake up. You don't necessarily have to follow any kind of protocol. Right. <laughs> Eventually your brain will realize it's in a beautiful place. <laughs> In New Zealand, I hear there's a snorkel trail. Oh, I love that. Well, so that's really an example of how a city is trying to sort of build a space of awe. Wellington, New Zealand is on the coast. I guess there are some really cool things to see under the ocean there. So there's a designated snorkel trail. So you can put on your snorkel in downtown Wellington. I love that. (laughs) Wade out into the ocean and have a little swim. Is your favorite poet Mary Oliver? I love Mary Oliver. (laughs) Okay, so can I tell you a quote from Mary Oliver? Yes. Let's see if I can sort of do this from memory. (laughs) Let me do what matters. And then the other part of that quote is, that is standing still and learning to be astonished. So beautiful. Beautiful. Talk about awe, right? Talk about awe, yeah. How to cultivate awe. Well, Florence, that went so fast, (laughs) but we are so happy you came to talk with us today. We've loved having you. You have some podcasts on Audible, award-winning, I might add. One is called Breasts Unbound. Is that correct? Yes. And the other is The Three-Day Effect. Was it Breasts Unbound that won the Gracie Award? Actually, both. <laughs> both won the Gracie Award. I just found out about the other one about a week ago. But both of those podcast series, in their six- to eight-part series, are based on my two books. So one is based on a book I wrote about breast health and environmental health and mm-hmm. through our body parts. And the other one is based on the Nature Fix book. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Will you come back? Absolutely. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure. It Next time been. we'll have to do it while we're outside yeah, on the hike. Yeah, yeah. We can do a walking podcast. That would be great. <laughs> Let's do it. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Health Gig Pod. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.